Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan, and I'm joined by David Ben, who, according to his website, is a writer, a conjurer, a creative consultant. Oh, yes, a magician. Conjurer, too. That's tight. This magic moment is brought to you by the AGO, which is the Art Gallery of Ontario in downtown Toronto. One of my all-time favorite AGO exhibitions was David Bowie Is. I think it was back in the fall of... Um, 2013 basically bowie's work and life and books and clothes and photographs of the sonic illusionist similar to david bowie is is illusions the art of magic on right now and it is a show business exhibition celebrating the golden age of magic roughly 1880 to 1930 featuring more than 55 colorful posters or lithographs from the allen slate collection plus Photographs and films, documents, and cool magic gear like handcuffs and Harry Houdini's straitjacket. Yes! Before talking to David Ben, I visited the Art Gallery of Ontario during my lunch. That's right. I decided to get all cultured. It, it happens occasionally. <laughs> Please don't tell anybody or else my street rep will get ruined. In the second wing from the entrance, there's a large Harry Houdini poster, really simple, really stylish of just like an image of his face, basically, with some marketing at the bottom. It basically just says Harry Houdini. As I gaze at Harry's fiery eyes, an older woman, all right, fine, she's a senior, but I, I wouldn't say that to her face. She's a senior, shuffles up behind me and to my left, and she exclaims, oh my, Thinking she must be equally mesmerized by Harry Houdini, she turns to me. He's so handsome and so talented. He is so handsome and so talented. And that right there is a totally different type of magic. Though he died in 1926, it's great to see Harry Houdini is still making magic happen in 2020. For more on Harry Houdini and the Golden Age of Magic, plus this wonderful AGO exhibition, Here's my conversation with magician, conjurer, avid magic historian, David Ben. Beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sam Yunan. Uh, welcome, magician David Ben. Uh, before we get into everything, you have a birthday coming up. Tomorrow? Is it tomorrow? It is tomorrow. Deep, dark secret. Yes. So what does a magician do for his birthday? Do you get a kid's magician or something to come out yeah, and do I, tricks? I or disappear tomorrow. Okay. To an exotic location. That's it, eh? That's it. All right. So, uh, happy birthday. So I Thank hope, you very much. I hope much. it is a good birthday. You got me before my first beverage, so it's a good thing. Okay. We'll see how that goes. So, yeah. So, the AGO is currently hosting uh, Illusions, the Art of Magic. And um, it's a collection of posters, basically. Uh, is that how you describe it? Of, like historical figures and magic and how they advertise their shows. Is that the uh, way? Y yes and no. And this is the next lawyer's answer. Uh, posters is a, um, is a convenient way to describe them. They're really lithographs. Mm -hmm. And today we sort of take posters uh, as to be the sorts of things that are plastered on the billboards or in coffee shops around town. Mm -hmm. These images had that same role, but they were actually lithographic, uh, the results of the lithographic process of drawing and inking on stone and pulling them off and multiple color uh, printings and registration and all of those issues. So mm -hmm. yes, they're posters, but I think elevated to a really high art. Yeah. So 
Is this um, an exhibition about magic or is this a show about like self-promotion? Well, I think it's all of those things. It's an uh, exhibition of the golden age of magic, which is roughly 1880 to 1930. Mm -hmm. And it also illustrates, as I like to say, that what's old is new and what's new is old. So it introduces the public to uh, magicians who they probably wouldn't have heard about with the exception of Harry Houdini, who's mm -hmm. still, as a friend of mine said, when it comes to Houdini, there's no escaping him. <laughs> yes. He's still um, you know, <laughs> as prominent today as, yeah. as ever. But it's also the thin edge of the wedge to explore issues like you know, women in magic and uh, how come there aren't more women in magic. Mm -hmm. and, but as I keep reading, how come there aren't more women in everything? You know, yeah. I, I read a book the other day on the history of the Arts and Letters Club by uh, Mar Margaret McBurney, who I was on the board of the Arts and Letters Club but with her, just a great writer. And I, I forgot that the Arts and Letters Club, this bastion of the arts in this country, did not allow women until 1985, mm -hmm. right? So it's to provide a context for those things and it's also uh, to talk a little bit about cultural appropriation because that's really a big buzzword today and and rightly so mm -hmm. and these posters people i think will be shake their head in disbelief but you have these you know caucasians pretending to be asian uh, on stage and sometimes talking in gibberish as if it's a foreign language from the you know the far east as they say mm -hmm. and raising up all those issues and the other issue, aside from just the magic, I think is important, is the idea of appropriating ideas. We live in the age of, you know, creative commons on the internet, where people sample ideas and incorporate them into songs or visual imagery. Well, magicians were doing that, you know, hundred years ago, and I'm not sure the results were always positive. It just as today, I, I'm not sure the results are always positive. In terms of that, like in terms of magicians and the creative commons that you're talking about, you're talking about how the tricks are done, right? It's like just not, yes, how the tricks are done. We have, you know, the great posters of Keller performing the levitation, and he basically, uh, through industrial espionage, learned the secret from somebody who worked for the guy who invented it. Mm -hmm. Yes, he made his own modifications, but then other people started ripping that off, and then... Uh, you also have the appropriation of visual imagery. You see, uh, you know, Thurston has little imps on his shoulder, uh, excuse me, Keller has little imps whispering secrets on into his ear, and that, in, uh, that motif became copied and stolen and sampled and uh, is repeated through lots of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, posters. So things like copyright and trademark protection and Magicians used to patent ideas, which was kind of stupid because all you do is explain to somebody <laughs> how it's done, and yes. then you got to go to another country and you yeah. have all the method and you just do it. So that free form uh, borrowing was rampant at more than just tricks and all aspects of, of the performance. Yeah, it, there seems to be, when you go through the exhibition, there seems to be almost two types of magic, I guess, in a way, where like people like magicians like Houdini, for example, were stressing the fact that it wasn't occult based, it was just. Right. technology science and technology basically and then you have like you said uh other magicians kind of like leaning into the whole occult thing and the spiritualism and the devil and the imps and the magical books and those but kind of things nobody really took it seriously i mean except unless you were a fraudulent spirit medium like there's a great poster of alexander the man who knows and quite a character you know i think he was charged with you know murder a couple times and he was a bigamist and he was a bootlegger mm -hmm. and then but he was also one of the first people to do sort of a pirate radio station uh on the sort of uh, texas mexico border where people would send him a dollar and a question and he would answer questions on the radio mm -hmm. and people sent in you know uh, you know thousands of dollars worth of questions so there's that dark side of that entertainment where he's offering that advice and people believe that he really had a psychic ability 
But most of the other people, they never, I don't, they were going to a show. Mm-hmm. And it was done, uh, the mysticism, more of a tongue-in-cheek nature. It's kind of ironic that uh, I had a show called The Conjurer that was at the Shaw Festival, you know, 20 plus years ago. And I appropriated the image of the imps on the shoulder for our poster. And I tried to uh, get a postage stamp made of that because at one time Canada Post had a uh, program where you could submit an image and mm-hmm. they put it on a personal postage stamp. And I was denied. I even appealed it because I was importing demonic spirits into the postage system. <laughs> yes. right? And like 100 years ago, these guys mm-hmm. are touring and these posters are all over town and nobody's complaining about mm-hmm. little devils and imps. Yeah, you know, and so magical books. and uh, So we've become less tolerant. So back then, yes, there were these... Uh, Mephisto characters and the little devils and imps and uh, you could see them bored by people like J.K. Rowling's for Harry Potter mm-hmm. characters but back then nobody said oh my god you know this, yeah. is, this is bad and is that part of the I guess the deception magic is a bit of a deception right so it's like well, I hope so right. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're all in trouble <laughs> right so and is that part of what the posters are conveying that uh, no, I, think, I think the posters are conveying uh, you have to remember this is an age when there isn't, you know, radio and streaming mm-hmm. and film is in its infancy, you have a train coming into a station and people recoiling somehow because they're going to be hit by a train. Right. It's hard to imagine that, right? And so these posters, these bright, colorful things that were ushering people into another world, they couldn't go to the Far East. Remember that, you know, China, Japan are just opening up their borders, really. Mm-hmm. So what's it like there, you know? And so they start bringing those motifs to to the West. It's just pure escapism, I think. Uh, John Neville Maskelon, who had a theater uh, for performed magic for basically 50 years in England, first at a place called Egyptian Hall and then St. George's Hall, uh, his shows were described as the, the perfect sort of show that an unmaiden aunt could bring her niece or nephew with no cause for blushing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and I think there's a wholesomeness to it there. I mean, there were sort of some dark elements to certain shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a performer named Ricky Yardy who did the song in Half Illusion, and he sort of warned people. He saved it for the end of his show. And he'd say, now, uh, this may be kind of gruesome, so if you kind of get scared, you, you probably want to leave now, which, of course, just makes people want to probably stay more. Yes. And he'd saw the person in half, separate them, and the blood and the guts would fly everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then he'd leave the body severed, and people could come up on stage and examine the severed torso, and that was the end of the show. Wow, <laughs> right? yeah. So it's sort of a Grand Guignol sort of theatrical aspect to it. That um, So you could have the darkness as well. But by and large, uh, it appealed to all demographics, all ages, which is one of the things we think the show does as well. It's mm-hmm. no coincidence. You said this golden age of magic, like radio and newspapers and this, all that stuff starting to grow and become bigger, more established. So then how did somebody like Houdini uh, manage to like still be popular today, like in 2020? Well, I, that's a great question. I think it's threefold. Houdini was a consummate showman and promoter, and he was aware of trends. And so you see him starting out as uh, doing sort of the, the death-defying escapes. And then we have a video clip of him in the exhibition of escaping from a straitjacket, which he first discovered in Nova Scotia, used on the quote-unquote criminally insane, which is a great marketing mm-hmm. sort of buzz to it, from an insane asylum, another charged word. But then, uh, and you see Houdini being hoisted up above a crowd of literally about 10,000 people. And I like to say he's really, he's created a flash mob. He's doing flash mobs in the teens and the 20s, mm-hmm. like 100 years ago. 
And then Houdini sees the writing on the wall with films. Films are coming in. And magicians used to be pioneers in the film industry. Georges Méliès, the great filmmaker, was a magician who took over Robert Houdin's theater at one point, and he started filming his stage illusions and creating these science fiction fantasies. So Houdini sees the future like this, and he starts buying a motion picture company and making his own motion pictures. So the AGO has, in the evening, scheduled some of his uh, films, and they're the forerunner of the action hero film and also the forerunner of the science fiction film. And then uh, when Houdini dies, his wife did something very smart. Uh, well, eventually she fell in love with a top Hollywood publicist. You're talking about Beth? Beth. Yeah. Beth falls in love with Edward Saint, who's a publicist, and, and he's there keeping Houdini's name in front of the public. Mm -hmm. I think Houdini's name would have drifted like a lot of these other performers if it wasn't for Edward Saint. And then lo and behold, uh, the Tony Curtis movie, mm -hmm. uh, with and uh, which Janet Lee, yeah, which is her first sort of like film, and uh, the Ajo screening that here, mm -hmm. and that entered the public consciousness, inspired a whole other generation, like Doug Henning inspired my generation. Uh, so, and as a result, as I said, as my friend said, I should say, with Houdini, there's no escaping him. He is front and center still today. But I think Edward Saint, the publicist, deserves a large hand. Plus. When you look at his story, it's an amazing story. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy what he would do. So. Yeah, part of the part of the exhibition too also focuses on the fact that now there's a lot of the technology to make these posters because these are not just like just one giant piece of paper. Right. Like, can yeah. you explain a little bit more? Sure. So, as I was alluding to earlier in the lithographic process, uh, there at the time there was not what we call four color printing. Never mind digital printing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you'd have to have an artist do a rendering with a special sort of writing instrument that had a certain level of sort of, you know, grease to it, and he would sketch it out on a stone, and it had to be a particular type of stone, generally Bavarian limestone. And then they would ink part of it with one color, and then they'd have to put the paper on it, and they would run that through a press, and then they would have to do that all over again with the same piece of paper with a different color inking to that piece of paper. So it was a very labor-intensive thing. So when we think of artwork today, we think there's one artist behind mm. it, the person who signs the piece. Here, we do not know who the artists were because it was a collective effort. And so that is staggering, really, when you think about it, getting those colors to blend and the registration, and not just on one piece of paper, which would be called a one sheet, roughly uh, 40 inches high by 30 inches wide, but they would do eight sheets and up to you know 16 sheet posters, even sometimes larger, so to get all of that registration and to get all that color uh, to work and that overall composition design was quite an incredible feat. Yeah, so and that was the same time too that the, the science and technology, I guess for lack of a better term, for the magic itself was getting better as well, wasn't it? Well, I think so. I think that uh, one of the things that really was the impetus for that was the development of their railroad network in North America. And the reason I say that is uh, you know, Europe was filled with strife between the you know, Franco-Prussian War, getting into the Boer War, getting into the First World War, where America was just booming, and they built this railroad network. And because of that, performers could start to troop their shows from city to city because they had a transportation network mm -hmm. to cart this stuff, which meant that before they went into another city, they needed posters. So they would send an advance man to go to that city to plaster these posters around. So with 
the need of the railroads with theater circuits, like I say today, we have Live Nation that set up all these tours. Well, back then you had people like Live Nation mm -hmm. who set up the tour. So the technology changed in how the magic was created because they had to create um, effects, illusions that would travel, that you could literally set up and strike and then move on mm -hmm. to another town. And so with that came an evolution. So even though Harry Keller kind of stole the technology of how to make somebody levitate, when John Neville Maskelyne created it in England, it was for his own stage. It was like he had his own permanent stage like Cirque du Soleil had in Vegas. Mm -hmm. So you could do certain things where Keller figured out how to streamline it from a technological point of view and set it up and move it on a daily basis. So all these lithographs, too, are part of a larger collection, right? Yes. Yeah, so the collection is uh, the Allen Slate Collection, which was donated to the McCord uh, Museum with uh, funding as a tribute to Allen by his wife, Emmanuel Gattuso, and her foundation, one of the great arts patrons in the country. And uh, Allen, uh, who I've known for decades, actually started out in magic before he became a broadcast you know, pioneer. Mm -hmm. He actually toured a show in Western Canada under what I think one of the great stage names of a mind reader that would be possible. His stage name was Powers, oh. Will Powers. That's so amazing. <laughs> eat your heart out, Austin Powers. <laughs> yes. somebody, somebody beat you to it <laughs> yeah. by like five decades yeah. or whatever. That's amazing. So Alan always had that interest in, 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 in the posters. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but this is only 55 images of mm -hmm. a collection that is over 600 posters and over a thousand pieces related to Houdini. And why I encourage people to come to the AGO to see it is that these posters cannot stay up for long. Unlike the oil canvases, their works on paper and the color is susceptible to fading if they're under too much light for too long. Mm -hmm. So they really have to be uh, sort of uh, safeguarded husbanded, if that's the correct word, uh, to uh, for how long they can be up. So if you want to see this type of thing, Now's the, now's the time because there's no guarantee uh, they won't be put away for years and years until they can come back for conservation purposes. How did you get into not just magic, but like the history of magic too? You're obviously quite passionate about the uh, history, right? Yeah, I th I've always been, I think some people think visually and some people think in uh, terms of language, some people think musically. My brain's wired to think magically. Ever since I was a kid, I've always recognized paradox and wondered can I resolve that paradox mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people out there like me and because uh, I'm I read a lot and they say if you want to keep something secret in magic put it into print because there's so much written on magic by hobbyists that uh, there are just great secrets buried away there and so I've always tried to buck the trend in my own material and find out things that nobody else is doing. So I went back to the old books and I spoke to the old timers and say, what did you ever see on stage that you haven't seen since? And that's how I got into sort of exploring this other world. And that this world you're talking about, too, a lot of the tricks are very similar, like cup and balls or card tricks and things like that. Right. Is it then just based on the personality of the well magician or what kind of separates a good magician from a, a okay magician? I, I think there's a few things. Uh, I think that, uh, and the exhibition is actually set up along these lines. Uh, people would have no reason to think about this probably until now, but magic like other arts, for example, music, only has so many notes from which you can compose your medley. Mm -hmm. And so in magic, there are basically eight sort of effects, as we call them. You can make something appear or disappear. You can transform one thing into another. Something can penetrate another. 
object or person, or you can defy a law of gravity, like make something levitate. And on the flip side of mind reading, you can, you know, divine the future, read someone's thoughts, telekinesis, you can move an object through some mystic power. So those are the notes. So when you see performers repeating certain effects, the method may change from the, you know, behind the scenes, but the effect, the sound they're creating, the visual imagery they're creating is part of the scale uh, of, of magic. So I think what makes a great magician is uh, how smoothly they, the material can be performed because the eye is, uh, uh, the hand is not uh, faster than the eye. Mm -hmm. uh, to really fool people, I think you have to do s it with s a smoothness and grace because otherwise it's like a film strip with a couple frames missing and there's a little jump. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you want to negate all that tension in those little jumps. So that's a sign. And then I think the, the, the like any stage piece, what's the mise-en-scene? What's the composition within the frame that creates you know great magic? And ultimately, and it comes down to personality. And uh, I think part of that is this concept of aesthetic emotion, which is near and dear to me. And I was introduced to it by exploring the works of David Milne and Emily Carr and Lauren Harris, which got me into Clive Bell's you know opus on it. And they say that you know uh, horror uh, you know movies as a genre that raises aesthetic emotion. Well, magic does because wonder is an aesthetic emotion, and so you get a performer who can sense the wonder in something and communicate that across the footlights to the audience. They're communicating something that raises or generates aesthetic emotion in the audience. And those are the best performers. The people who just worry about trying to fool someone, to me, are uh, just, uh, you know, you might as well just have a player piano playing mm -hmm. the thing. Uh, it's really the greatest performers can create a sense of emotion through movement, through voice, through visual illusion, and that's what interests me and ultimately, I think, makes a great performer. And, and typically with magic, a lot of people, especially civilians, when they see a trick being done or uh, something has happened, they try and figure out how did you do that. But w yeah, in terms of actual m magicians, why do they do what they do? Like, is well, there... I think some people, you know, it appeals to all sorts of things. I, uh, for me personally, I'd like to say if someone, and they see one of my shows, if d during my performance they're trying to figure out how it's done, it means that I have failed as a performer because I promised to take them on a journey, and it obviously means that what I have staged is not interesting enough to take them on that journey mm -hmm. that they're now thinking about, well, when am I going to be home, or how is this done, or should I check out my iPhone and see Google something? Mm -hmm. So I think that's uh, a strike against the performer if somebody's trying to figure out how it's done. If afterwards they go, they, they can go look at it all they want because uh, it's a different uh, time frame. Uh, so I, I, uh, I think that's really the, you know, the goal is to take them on that, that ride. And uh, I sort of lost my train there in the last oh, part of your question. Oh, uh, like the, you want to take them on a journey, yeah. the wonder? Yeah, so th I mean, and I, that's really, I, I, I think, the goal and also separates these performers from you know, most of the people today. But uh, you know, we were talking sort of off mic about Sturgeon's Law and you know, the sci great science fiction writer who was purportedly uh, you know, sort of criticized for s somebody saying that 90% you know, of science fiction is crap and Sturgeon's purported response is, well, 90% of everything is crap. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true with any field and, and you know, magic certainly within that yeah and so the exhibition is ongoing now at the uh, AGO and um, from that 
from that um, experience, just both the historical magic and now your own experiences as a magician, just to kind of finish up what you're saying about wonder, you as a magician, you get to see people kind of at their best when they're like surprised or yes. amazed. Yes. Does that ever kind of get old or is it like well, is that part of the joy of the... It, it is definitely the joy and it's what attracted us to magic in the first place. And the more that you... People always say, well, how do you... You know, afterwards they say, you know, how do you make somebody feel when they see the exhibition? And... And I like to say it's a twofold answer. The first is there are many ways to make somebody float because the guy who invented it wasn't going to tell somebody else unless <laughs> you stole it like Harry Keller. Uh, you had to come up with your own method, and that comes down to creativity, that there are always many ways to achieve every objective. So there is no one set way. So, But on the other hand, uh, I think you want to encourage the imagination to, to think about those things. And the more you know... I explain to somebody, well, this is how you could make somebody float, then I just deprive them of that because they can of wonder because they can never view that or see that illusion the same way. Mm -hmm. And that's a really precious thing. And you learn that the longer you're in magic because the things that evoke wonder in us as a performer, it becomes harder and harder. It's a drug that got me into it that I just can't get again. Uh, Alan Slate and I used to host a conference called 31 Faces North where we would invite 30 of the top performers in the world to Toronto for literally a four-day think tank where we'd have three great meals a day, an open bar for four days, and no scheduled events. We would just sit around and exchange ideas. And there was this great performer from Holland who went under the stage name of Tommy Wonder. And uh, Tommy performed uh, a show for us. Uh, and these were 30 of the most well-posted people in the world, and they were completely bamboozled. And Tommy said, well, would you like me to explain how it's done now? And, and collectively, spontaneously, everybody said, no. <laughs> right? We don't want to know. Yeah. Like, that's what got us into it. And we finally were just uh, totally mesmerized and transported. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we want to leave. with not And he was kind of surprised. but uh, And I think he appreciated the fact that uh, we felt so um, enthralled with the work that we didn't, we didn't want to spoil it. That's, again, just kind of going back to what you're saying, that you think magically. It's creativity as well. It's kind of what you... It's creativity. It's challenging assumptions. It's, uh, you know, Alan Slate's guru, if there was, I can use that phrase, was a Canadian named Stuart James, who mm -hmm. was born in Courtright, Ontario, and had a very difficult childhood where he wasn't allowed to play with other people. And so Stuart invented things, like on his teeter-tottery, when he's a child, he puts rocks on the other end, and Eventually, Stuart created three imaginary people that he could sit around the table with and create things with. And he's one of the great creators in magic. And Stuart, uh, used to say, was in his own little world, but that's okay because they knew him there. Mm -hmm. And um, the point of this is that Stuart created, really, Edward de Bono's theory of six thinking hats decades before de Bono was born. Wow. And so the people that... Uh, I sort of gravitate towards and Alan has in magic and are, you know, cr creative people. I, years ago, I wrote a book called Advantage Play, which is a euphemism for cheating at cards. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book was about the cre pro creative process used by professional card cheats and fraudulent psychics because they're some of the most creative people I've ever met in my life. They just have a higher degree of larceny in them than most. <laughs> yes. But it's that's all how they're wired. That's, that's how, how they they're wired. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I had a, f a friend uh, who uh, 
was a professional cheat and he invented a credit card that he could use like in slot machines, basically like it was an ATM. Mm -hmm. And instead of blowing it all the casinos in one night and retiring, he just thought, oh, I just need a quarter of milk. I'll just go in and <laughs> that's it, like an ATM. <laughs> and, he did. And, and eventually he got caught. But yeah. uh, you know, he just had like larceny in his heart. You know? <laughs> yes. So, uh, but it doesn't take away from the fact that he was in incredibly creative. And so that's the that's your viewpoint and your creativity. And then so as we look back at the uh, at these lithographs and these posters. Yeah. Are you hoping that the by people kind of connecting to the past, they kind of get excited about the future of magic as well? Well, sure. I think that magic, uh, this is the first golden age, and the second golden age of magic uh, was really started in Toronto by Doug Henning in the early 70s, and we're still in that golden age. Uh, I think that uh, people can use screens for only so long, and that ultimately, uh, you know, magic's always been great on stage because it's broken down these so-called fourth wall of bringing people in onto the stage to participate in these illusions or for the performers to go out in the audience and, and do that. And uh, I think I want people to walk through that exhibition and say, well, this I've seen this before. Oh, yeah, you know, I've never thought about this, that Houdini's actually created flash mobs, and this is what a real flash mob looks mm -hmm. like. And, uh, that's, and most of all, I want them just to wonder. I want to wonder about the past, wonder the future, and say, well, well maybe it's possible. Mm -hmm. Because if they say maybe it's possible, it'll just spark some kid's imagination to say, oh, yeah, how would I do that? And yeah. Man, we're off the races now. Yeah, magic is good at kind of disrupting the, the yes. flow. Uh, what if? Yeah. Because, I mean, you kind of go through life and you're just working and going to the cubicle and paying the bills and stuff, and magic yeah. kind of disrupts everything. For sure. That's, that's the whole point. We're a disruptor. Yeah. <laughs> so where can people find you online? Well, online, I'm, uh, I'm the artistic director of an organization called Magicana.com, M-A-G-I-C-A-N-A.com. And one of the things we're doing there uh, through funding from the Slate family is setting up the screening room, a database with great magic performances that are searchable by effect and by performer. And we recently acquired the world's largest collection of archival material related to magic. Uh, from a collector in Los Angeles, the McElhaney Collection, and we are slowly digitizing all of this and putting it online for free. So you can see me through there. My own uh, website is davidben.com, but I'm kind of retired from performing, So, <laughs> um, but I'm there as a, as a placeholder. Is there any uh, hope or desire, I guess, to set up something similar like the Magic Castle and put well, one in Toronto or well, something similar like that? The Magic Castle is a special uh, set of circumstances, but you know that style of performing, the Magic Castle was set up in the early 60s by the Larson family, and it's still going strong. It's a private club. You need a sort of an invite uh, to go see, and they stage uh, magic performances through it and have fine dining and all those sorts of things. And where the golden age of magic was on stage, after the golden age in the 1940s and 50s became the era of the nightclubs and that with its own set of performers. And that style of magic is really taking off now around the world. So there are, uh, you know, Chicago Magic Lounge, uh, performers working in the hotels in New York, in uh, Washington, in London, in Paris. And there's talk right now about doing something like that in Toronto. It won't be the, the same sense of the castle, but for people to go as adults mm -hmm. uh, to have some cocktails and see something kind of crazy and unnerving. Disrupt and, uh, the flow. Disrupt the flow. That's in the works here in Toronto. That would be amazing. All right. Thank you, David Ben. Well, thank you.
Yo, welcome to Notes of Noteworthy. Every so often, this random radio signal, I think it was Q107 or something weird, this random radio signal bled into my conversation with David Ben. It's a bit frustrating. According to Google, that will happen with this recorder. I don't know. It's kind of... It was a first for me, as was having a conjurer on the show. I apologize for that. I hope it wasn't too distracting. I appreciate David talking about the aesthetic experiences of awe and wonder. A novel means the writer never gets to see the reader get to that twist or that big reveal and the face they make. In comedy, if the jokes are good, <laughs> big if, uh, people will laugh. If the jokes fall flat, people will cross their arms or worse, heckle. But with magic, even simple card magic or, or cup and balls magic, there is always some awe and some wonder it is amazing what's amazing about illusions the art of magic at the ago is that you get to see real magic as part of your admission the magic is supplied by the toronto magic company one of the performing magicians is jonah babbins you have to go when he is performing jonah was my guest on my summer layer chapter 118 118 jonah is delightful and generous and witty and magical all in that order. Like David Ben, he's an avid magic enthusiast. Like if you listen to that interview he and I did, it concludes with Jonah performing a magic trick. You can follow along at home. Like he prepared a magic trick for the end of that podcast. Like how cool is that? Jonah's own podcast, Discourse in Magic, interviews magicians so as to make magic better and improve the craft and craftsmanship of being a magician. David Ben is a guest on Discourse in Magic podcast. It's a, it's a totally different take from what he and I discuss here, so do check that out. As for the AGO's exhibition, it is amazing. This is the word of the day because it's clearly the start. The start is when the energy is infectious and the hope is high. It could be anything. The tricks are getting better, the technology is getting better, the marketing is getting better, and you can see it all starting to come together. It's weird, but in a weird way, we take globalization for granted. Houdini in particular, we still recognize and acknowledge his name and his fame. This is how it started. When you look at the other posters, you'll see devilish type symbols and like uh, magic books. Kind of like the top hat, the mustaches, all the things you kind of allude to uh, in the conversation with David and you associate with magic. But with Houdini, it's just an image of him and in large letters at the bottom there. Harry Houdini. The way Stephen King's name is in a bigger font than an actual novel's title. It's a brand. Harry Houdini is a brand. Anybody into magic, anybody interested in creativity, um... Anybody who's into marketing or advertising. Anybody with a side hustle who wants it to become a day job should really consider checking out Illusions, The Art of Magic at the AGO in downtown Toronto. Take your time. Enjoy it. Go through it slowly. The My Summer Layer episode after this is with Joe Poznanski for his book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini which you could buy at the AGO's gift shop. Fantastic book. Let's finish this off because I know you're waiting for it. That book is also amazing. Thank you so much for listening to me in the Netflix world.
AGO, yo.